Manuel Noriega and Slobodan Milosevic, in my opinion, uh-huh. uh, were running a kleptocracy. They were running a, a family-oriented uh, tribe of people who were ripping off uh, the countries they, uh, they, they headed uh, for their own and personal wealth and, and power. Former Ambassador Bill Walker goes on to describe these dictators as nakedly self-interested people. When asked about Noriega's and Milosevic's own claims that they were advancing the public interest for their respective countries, Ambassador Walker says... That's right, bullshit. That's not what he was doing. However, Ambassador Walker did go on to acknowledge that America has... In fact, supported governments that you say were authoritarian, uh, were not treating their people very well. Um, you know, the best that can be said for Emmanuel Noriega was he, he kept it in Panama. He didn't expand his, uh, his quest for uh, riches outside of his, his country. Um, Slobodan Milosevic was a bit more expansive in going into Croatia when Yugoslavia broke up. But, uh, you know, I, these are the two guys, as you say, the two of this type that I've come face to face with. Ambassador Walker refers to America's support of dictators and tyrants around the world as... So the blackest spot on American history. When asked to provide an explanation for these dark marks in American history, Ambassador Walker stressed the importance of understanding historical context, stating that... It's tough as you're going through a period in history without knowing it. You're just doing what you think is your job. Uh, you can come to very erroneous conclusions as to what the best solution is. Stay tuned for more from Ambassador Walker as he explores the moral ambiguities of international relations, diplomacy, and war. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We are here today with Bill Walker, former ambassador to El Salvador representing the United States. Bill is a former head of the Kosovo Verification Mission of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe from 1998 to 1999. He's a foreign foreign service officer and deputy assistant secretary of state. Bill is a former vice president of the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., and a former special representative of the Secretary General of the United Nations as the head of peacekeeping missions in Croatia. He's an honorary citizen of Albania, Kosovo, and San Salvador. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Doing fine. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Sure. So the first question I'd like to pose to you today is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? What am I currently doing? I'm obviously retired for almost 18 years from all those titles, but uh, I am still very active. I go to Kosovo as often as I can. Mm-hmm. A couple of times every quarter, I go to El Salvador maybe twice a year. 
uh, keeping up contacts, trying to trying to help both of those countries, uh, in which I spent a lot of years of my life, uh, trying to help them become democracies, trying to help them sustain development, that sort of thing. Um, what would I most like? To be remembered for? Well, what have you... So, uh, let's transition to the actual meat of this. Okay. You have uh, experienced... You, you've, you've served as a diplomat throughout much of your life, but there are a few incidents when that really have come to define your diplomatic career, and these have been violent incidents. Of course, I'm referring to the deaths of five Jesuits in 1989 in El Salvador uh, due to Salvadorian so-called death squads, and the uh, famous Ratchak massacre in 1999 uh, or 1998 and 9 in in, in, uh, in uh, Yugoslavia at the time by Serbian security forces I'd like to ask you to bring our listeners into some of these events um, and how that eventually led to, uh, to 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 press conferences and international news coverage that eventually uh, in your own words started a war well as you uh as you mentioned, I was involved most of my career in what you would have to call war zones, Latin America against the narcotics types, um, in uh, Brazil against a military government that was uh, torturing its citizens, disappearing them. In El Salvador, you mentioned death squads. I was there twice before the Civil War and during the Civil War. Um, and then in Croatia, in Kosovo, both uh, war zones. I felt, uh, I feel that I was involved in at least three major happenings in the world. I happened to be assigned to all three of them, uh, and they turned out very, very differently from what I expected. I'll mention the three that I think were the most significant in my career. One was uh, as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Central American Affairs during what uh, later became known as the Contragate Years. Um, I got very involved, not just with the Contras problem in, in Central America, but also with the regime of uh, Manuel Noriega in Panama. And I went down there during the, the, the lead up to the war there to try and negotiate uh, with Noriega for him to leave Panama. Uh, at the end of a couple of days of sitting talking to him and trying to convince him that he should leave, take his money and go someplace else, uh, General Noriega not, not only said no to the U.S. government's offer, he said hell no. <laughs> and that led a few months later, or a year later, to uh, the bombardment of, of Panama by U.S. forces. The second one I would talk about is El Salvador, where, as you mentioned, I served as ambassador from uh, uh, 90, excuse me, 88 to 92. Those were the last four years of the Civil War there, which I would remind you was a very, very bloody, costly Civil War, which are always the worst kind of war, as people really, uh, really went after each other, and many, many thousands of people died. You mentioned the five Jesuits; that was sort of the culmination of when I was there, because that led to headlines around the world, that led to attention on El Salvador. I was the ambassador. Those were very, very difficult days, but uh, it also led to the opening of negotiations to end the war, and a year later. I was very involved in that process, the negotiations between the FMLN guerrillas, uh, the right-wing government, and also uh, with the United States heavily involved as a U.S. ambassador. I was very involved. 
and I take some credit for the fact that the war ended mm-hmm. and the violence, uh, at least of the type of violence that El Salvador was witnessing, civil war, uh, ended. Death squads, that sort of thing, ended. Now, today they've got a lot of violence, but it's of a different nature. The third thing, which I guess I'm most well known for, um, and if you look around the room, you'll see memos to that, um, was my last major assignment, which is you described as being uh, uh, head of the Kosovo verification mission. In 1998, Slobodan Milosevic, the president of Serbia, had been very... uh, had been very defiant against the international community when they tried to find out what was going on in Kosovo. He insisted that Kosovo was part of Yugoslavia, part of Serbia, and therefore it was an internal matter. No one from the outside could come in and tell the world what was happening. And in that time, in 1980, what year is this? This is 1997. So 1997, legally, what is Kosovo? It is an autonomous part of Serbia. In 1997. In 1997. And about 10 years prior, it was in Yugoslavia. In about 10 years, when there was a Yugoslavia 10 years earlier, it was a part of Serbia. It was an autonomous republic within Serbia. Okay. As such, uh, uh, Slobodan Milosevic had total control over what was happening in Kosovo. Mm -hmm. Kosovo has 90, 95% Albanians Mm -hmm. of a different ethnicity than Serbs, and maybe 5% Serbs. Is this a legacy, to some extent, of the Ottoman uh, policy of having Janissaries and forcibly converting boys to Islam from Christianity? That's part of it. You can go back 500 years if you want to. We could go back 1,000 years Mm -hmm. and talk about who was converting who and why did people convert. But in 1997, what you had was a very divided population, but it was 95% versus 5% Mm -hmm. Albanians versus Serbs. As I say, uh, Slobodan Milosevic in 1998 finally agreed Mm -hmm. uh, after long discussions with uh, Richard Holbrook from the U.S. who was trying to negotiate something like he had negotiated in Bosnia-Herzegovina earlier. And who was Richard Holbrook? He was a... uh, Interesting man. He was a, some people thought he was America's greatest negotiator, America's greatest diplomat. He was in and out of uh, diplomatic situations. In the early 90s, he had negotiated uh, the Dacon Accords. Well, just his title at the time. Oh, I think he was... He uh, wasn't the cabinet secretary or ambassador. He he wasn't in, well, we called him Ambassador Holbrook. Yeah. But at the time that he started with... uh, with uh, Kosovo, he was actually out of government, mm-hmm. and he was in the banking business. Okay, he re- worked for Credit Suisse, I believe. But uh, he was called in, and he was sent up to talk to uh, to Slobodan Milosevic. And after several negotiations, uh, he announced, and Slobodan Milosevic announced that for the first time, the Serbian government was going to allow an international organization to send in a bunch of internationals who would uh, either monitor or verify, whatever you want to say, tell the world what was happening in Kosovo Mm -hmm. from an independent, impartial viewpoint of internationals. Uh, They picked the OSCE, which is a sort of a European 
United Nations. It's got mm -hmm. uh, 54 members, I believe. Russia's a member. Uh, Ukraine's a member. Belarus is a member. Um, so it was not just Western countries. It was European entities. Um, the OSCE took up the challenge. They had never had a challenge as big as that. Mm -hmm. Prior to that mission that I headed, uh, the biggest mission the OSCE had ever put in was in Croatia, and I think it was like 200, 250 internationals. You led 3,300 people. No, that's too high. They were going to, it was going to be 2,000, mm -hmm. but we never got up to that. Uh, we only got up to about 1,400 at the time we had to leave and make way for the NATO bombing. <laughs> um, so Slobodan Milosevic agreed to the OSCE sending in representatives from all the countries of the OSCE. The United States is a member, Canada is a member. The only exception, the OSCE has a rule that you don't send in observers or a mission made up of people from the neighboring countries. In other words, from Croatia, mm -hmm. from Albania. There were no members uh, from that. They were from all the other countries of the OSCE. Why was an American ambassador leading a essentially European United Nations? Me, the American ambassador? Well, because Slobodan Milosevic agreed to it. Uh, but why not a French person or a Spanish person? I get, well, if you know anything about European politics, yeah. uh, you know, if they named a Frenchman, the English would have been very upset. Uh, if they so you were just someone that could that be... For some reason, they thought an American coming in from outside... Neutral. Uh, ...would be a more neutral than someone from Europe who would be, you know, the French are always thought to be on the side of Serbia. Uh-huh. The Brits, who knows? Yeah. So the thought was from Richard Holbrook uh, that an American would be a bit more neutral than anyone else they could think of. I always wondered why Slobodan Milosevic uh, would allow an American to come in. And the only reason I can think of is the following. Just before this, I had served as head of the United Nations peacekeeping operation in Croatia. Mm -hmm. And there my job was to head a United Nations peacekeeping operation with lots of soldiers and lots of international uh, civilians to protect the Serb minority in eastern Croatia from the Croatian army, which was fast advancing towards... Them. So he thought that since you so protected... So he thought that I had protected Serbs in Croatia... That you must that like. I, I must like Serbs, and therefore I would go and I would tell the world that the Serb side of the argument between them and the Albanians uh, was obviously the truth was on the Serb side. That was not how I saw it either going in or how I saw it after I'd been there for a short time. So the, there's a few questions, there's so many questions that arise. One thing that seems uh, just fascinating is that you've personally met with many dictators. Uh, you've met with Manuel Noriega and you've spoken to him and you've met with Slobodan Milosevic in the same room and you've met him and you've spoken to him. Many Americans might be wondering, what was it like to talk to these dictators? Well, with uh, Manuel Noriega, it was, uh, it was bizarre, I guess. We went down there. I went down there with another uh, assistant secretary, a deputy assistant secretary from the State Department, a fellow named Mike Kozak. Uh, he's a lawyer. I'm not. We were going to try and talk the, the legal uh, way we could get Manuel Noriega to leave. We also brought along a psychiatrist from the CIA to sit and sort of tell us what was going on as we discussed his leaving with Manuel Noriega. Uh, we spent, as I say, two, two and a half days. Did they see themselves as dictators? I think Manuel Noriega. Yeah, yeah, both of them did, yeah. 
Uh, Manuel Noriega was in a bit of, he was sort of on a cloud. And we, our psychiatrist said maybe he's taking excessive medicines or he's doing something with drugs. Who knows? Uh -huh. He was just acting kind of weird, very silent, kind of not really in the conversation. And we're talking about a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, so he was one thing. I think by the time I saw him... Um, What's going through their minds? If the rest of the world is seeing them as evil villains, how are they viewing themselves? How do they justify? What is their mental story? I think their mental story is the same mental story that uh, a John Gotti or... Uh, these guys, both of them, Manuel Noriega and Slobodan Milosevic, in my opinion, uh -huh. uh, were running a kleptocracy. They were running a, a family-oriented... Uh, tribe of people who were ripping off uh, the countries they uh, they they headed uh, for their own and personal wealth and and power. Uh, Noriega called himself a patriotic Panamanian, and he was rallying against the the forces of the United States who were trying to to influence uh, internal politics. In their minds, were I'm they... I'm sorry, bullshit. That's not what he was doing. What were he, they trying... In their own minds, were they trying to advance any kind of public interest for anyone? <sighs> Tough well, question. I mean, that, you know, I, not, not that I witnessed. So they're basically nakedly self-interested people. Yes, nakedly self-interested people. That's a very good way of putting it. Now, and another question, which you're uniquely poised to answer... The United States, throughout the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century, post-World War II, uh, has, uh, I'm not sure to what extent this is an objective statement, but I guess many objective observers have, have noted that the United States has supported and preferred stable dictatorships during the Cold War to democratically elected leftist governments. And that, in fact, there are numerous instances around the world, from Africa to Asia to South America, where the United States has used its military might to overthrow countries that were more politically sympathetic to the Soviet Union, the United States, installing military dictatorships and leading to more violence. How do you answer that? I answer that it's the blackest spot on American history for the last, um, well, I only know about the last 50 or 60 years, maybe it goes back even further. We have tended, not tended, we have in fact supported governments that you say were authoritarian, uh, were not treating their people very well. Um, you know, the best that can be said for Emmanuel Noriega was he, he kept it in Panama, he didn't expand his, uh, his quest for uh, riches outside of his, his country. Um, Slobodan Milosevic was a bit more expansive in going into Croatia when Yugoslavia broke up. But, uh, you know, I, these are the two guys, as you say, the two of this type that I've come face to face with. Um, how do we reconcile? How, 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 how can we reconcile our support for uh, our, our friendship with Manuel Noriega uh, during the years when we knew what he was doing to his own people? Uh, what he was doing in terms of narcotics, what he was doing... And in as terms a diplomat, you were representing America. This was what America was doing. This was American policy. This was the U.S. Congress's conceptualization of what was in the American interest. 
how did you feel? Did you ever feel conflicted as a diplomat where you were implementing and policies and representing a nation that was responsible for doing this? Many times, many times. Uh, when I was, uh, I was in Brazil in the uh, early 70s, and that was, as I said earlier, a period of military dictatorship. They were doing some very nasty things. But Brazil's a huge country, and that sort of thing didn't get much attention. Um, it was a very nasty government. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, was, I was head of the political section in Rio. Uh, the capital had just moved up to Brasilia, but most of the events were still happening in, in, in Rio. And, and I became not only the political officer, but I was in charge of the human rights side of things. And you can imagine how difficult it was for me uh, talking to people who'd been tortured, talking to families of disappeared people, uh, going back and writing reports and then finding out that some other elements in the embassy uh, were not going to agree to that going out because it was shedding bad light on the on the Brazilian government or on the Brazilian intelligence services, that sort of thing. I was conflicted, obviously, but I obviously found ways of getting the information out. Um, in, in, in that position as a political officer in the American embassy, a lot of information came to me. I tried to get it out through official channels, but if I couldn't, if the station chief from the CIA said, oh, no, we're not going to let you tell this, you know, I'm not going to sign off on that cable, then I would, you know, talk to journalists or I'd do some other things that would get the same information out. Could that have out. Led, you to, led to you le- losing your job or being... No, 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 no. It wasn't leaking. It was, you know, sort of passing on information that I'd acquired and, you know, I, I just talked to so-and-so and he told me this had happened to him. I can't verify it, but, you know, there are ways you can you can get these stories out. So, to answer the basic question, was it was I conflicted at times? Very much so. But not to the point that I was going to say I'm leaving and I'll let whoever was blocking my reporting not get out, be in charge. I'll go down Let one. me go down one more track. In El Salvador, when I was there as ambassador, the Jesuits were killed, horrible things are happening. We were still basically on the side of the government. I could have said no, not for me. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pursue a policy in which we're helping this government. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, there, there, there were arguments that were being used in our Congress, that were being used in various uh, various analytic reports. You know, that said that the FMLN was was not a good guy. Mm-hmm. They were trying to shoot their way into power, mm-hmm. and the government there was trying to stop that. They were doing some bad things. We were sort of helping them stop them from shooting their way into power. When the war ended, the FMLN started playing a political game, and now they're the government. I went down immediately on their being elected seven, eight years ago, and I said, look, I was dead set against you when you were up in the hills trying to shoot your way into power. Mm -hmm. But now I'm all in favor of you because you were voted into power. That's what democracy is all about. (laughs) And, you know, if I can do, if I can help you make El Salvador a better place for the people of El Salvador... That was my mission back then. It's still my mission. Was it in... So America pursued these policies of supporting dictatorships in some instances because we thought it was in our interest. Let me ask you, in your opinion, was it in our interest to do that? That's a difficult question looking back. I mean, I remember as a very junior officer, you know, the, in the lead up to the war in Vietnam... 
As I heard the arguments about what was going on in Vietnam, I wasn't personally involved, but I had friends in the Foreign Service who'd served there, came back, and that sort of thing. You know, I was I was pretty well convinced that this might take a a war. We must might have to support the government in, in Saigon to stop this invasion from the north, etc. I saw reasons why this made sense, not just from American interests, but from the interests of giving Vietnam a chance not to be taken over by this communist regime in the north. I saw the reason for it. Fifty years later, I now see all the reasons against why we did that. Yeah. So it's tough to, it's tough as you're going through a period in history without knowing it, you're just doing what you think is your job, uh, you can come to very erroneous conclusions as to what the best solution is. Now, suppose that America only wanted to nakedly pursue its own self-interest at the expense of the entire world. Would these decisions still have been made? No. All I can say is, from my experience, 40 years in the State Department, uh, you know, the vast majority of the people I knew who were working on issues that we're talking about were, you know, trying to for, push forward American interests, not not economic interests, not getting more banana plants in mm-hmm. Honduras to feed the banana habits of the United States, and that's why we helped support United Fruit. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Southeast Asia, we thought an invasion by the North, we thought there was a domino possibility effect. There were reasons to say we're going to support the government in Saigon. And that led to one thing after another, and all of a sudden we're in all-out war. And, you know, were we doing it for naked American reasons, or were we doing it because we'd sort of moved along this spectrum of little decisions that led to, to what was the Vietnam War? There's an international war of terror going on in the 21st century. It was famously inaugurated with the September 11th attacks in New York and Washington, D.C., This war of terror is perpetrated by individuals, often in developing nations. Obviously, people like Osama bin Laden had connections to Saudi Arabia, which isn't necessarily categorized as a developing nation. But um, the point is, many individuals argue that America has hurt them and, and, and isn't a benign power, but has acted in the interests of dictators in undemocratic fashions, fascists. How do we respond is there any legitimacy to any of the concerns articulated by perpetrators of the international war on terror? Is there anything that, if if we had done something different in the past, which could lead to different actions in the future that might have preempted the creation of an ISIS? Is there is there any culpability that America has in having created this new era of, of global enemies? Of course. I mean, America is the number one world power. We have our, I don't want to say tentacles, but we have our outreach to all parts of the world, decisions made in the remotest corner of Nepal. Uh, They probably wonder what the United States is going to say or do in reaction to whatever they're going to do. Everybody in the world thinks that the U.S. is paying total attention to them. Mm -hmm. Um, Do we make bad decisions at times? Do we? Yes. You know, we don't know as much as we think we know about what's going on in a corner of Nepal, and we'll make a decision based sometimes on almost total ignorance or not understanding the complexities or the or the 
you know, the, the, the nuances of the situation all the time. But I, I would argue, and I still would argue, that, you know, alongside these errors in judgment in which we have, as we say, got into bed with Manuel Noriega or with a right-wing government in Guatemala in 1952, uh, you know, with Pinochet in Chile, the Latin American examples that I know best, you know, we've also done some things trying to promote democracy, including some of those events that later turned out not to be promoting democracy, but just the opposite. So it's, 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 uh, it's a constant conflict uh, when you hear about something happening in some part of the world, you bring your best knowledge to the situation, but you still don't really, you know, the, the people who are going to make the decision are sitting here in Washington and as to what America's reaction is going to be. Yeah. I am, I, you know, I am greatly concerned with the present situation in which the State Department is being stripped of its knowledge of remote corners of Nepal. Uh, many of the young officers, mid-level officers, senior officers with years of experience, the best voices we have to tell us what's happening around the world are leaving in droves. And how are the people in Washington who make the decisions that affect how we're going to react to something around the world, mm -hmm. how are they going to know what to, how to react to something that happens in Nepal or Mexico or any place in the world when they don't have the institutional knowledge mm -hmm. from the institutions that are supposed to tell them. And even when they have that knowledge, which we normally have had a State Department functioning, mm -hmm. uh, you still make big mistakes. But without that knowledge, you're going to make even bigger mistakes. And I would suggest that from now on, at least for the foreseeable future, many mistakes are going to be made along the lines that we're talking about. Now, Siding with people in places like Saudi Arabia that we, we should not side with. I'd like to return to the topic of the late 1990s in the Balkans. At this time, you did work that you were later uh, recognized for with a Golden Medal of Freedom in Kosovo with honorary citizenship in, in, in two of those Balkan nations um, because of your work there. So clearly, there was work that you did that created a positive perception of America in those areas. You had mentioned about leaking or, or providing information to the press. There's a famous... Um, uh, Rechak massacre for which you are very strongly publicly associated where 45 Kosovar Albanians were killed which led uh, to a change in international opinions and eventually the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia in 1999 um, so the question is or former Yugoslavia in 99 so I'd like to ask you you've seen terrible things you are seeing uh, bodies riddled with bullets blood just disgusting terrible things it eventually led to you being declared a persona non grata. Would you take us back into uh, the late 90s in Serbia when you were on the ground leading 1,400 people, what the situation was like uh, and how American, foreign or American diplomacy led uh, to the arrest of a genocidal uh, uh, movement in Serbia? Well, we could speak for many hours on that subject. Um, when I arrived in Kosovo in uh, late 98, mid-98, um, you know, I went there expecting to be neutral, expecting to looking at both sides and telling the world what I thought was happening. Um, I, I thought that was my mission. I was to be neutral. 
and I told 1,400 internationals that joined me before the end uh, that was our uh, that was our position. We were not to really take sides, but we were supposed to tell the world what was happening. Uh, it didn't take too long to find out that neutrality was going to be very hard to maintain. Uh, you know, before this massacre in Rochak, there were many other massacres. Uh, the difference with this particular one was that, as I said, it was only when I got there and we got there, the mission, uh, that there was an international presence there that could get to the site of one of these massacres within hours. Now, other- were the journalists who broke the story there because you were there? No, there, well, it depends. Uh, up, until, up until we got there, uh, there were journalists in, in, in Kosovo, but they were usually uh, local journalists, either from Serbia, from Belgrade, or uh, Albanians mm-hmm. trying to get the story out. Uh, there were a few internationals who would go past, or you'd see us something on, on uh, CNN or something, you know, a couple of minutes. Uh, but there was no serious journalistic investigation of what was going on in Kosovo until the mission got there. And even when the mission got there, it was sort of a story about, well, what are you going to do, and what do you think of this, etc. Well, we're, we're, we're just getting here. Mm-hmm. Give us time. The Rachak massacre happened, and we were able to get there. I was able to get there within hours of the occurrence, mm-hmm. at dawn of the morning after they had been killed during the night. Uh, you saw, as you say, a very bloody, horrible scene. Do you have and nightmares of that? I think about it a lot. <laughs> At, 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 at can you still see it in your mind? Oh, yeah, I can see it, sure. I mean, uh, you know, look around the room, you'll see there's a big painting over there of, of, uh, of the bodies. Uh, I go there every January 15th to remember the fallen. But that was just one massacre. But what happened was I, as an international voice, got up and said, I saw what I think is the result of a massacre. I think it was committed by the security forces from Belgrade. If they disagree with my analysis, let's send in an independent investigation, not from Kosovo, not from Belgrade, mm-hmm. but from the outside world, you know, forensic experts, and then we'll know, you know, where the truth lies. Slobodan Milosevic made, I think, one of the bigger mistakes of his tenure. He declared me persona non grata, which brought in journalists from all over the world. What's this American diplomat being thrown out for? Mm-hmm. That became a story. Mm-hmm. It was a sexy story. I was the uh, who's the porn star who's now on the you know I was the, I was the porn star of the moment. Yeah, in the international press. People came in from Japan mm-hmm. to uh, to ask why are you being thrown out, and that brought you know more professional journalists in, and they started asking the questions. You know what's really going on here. Were there other massacres? Uh, what, is the, what do the security forces do? What is life like? And their response people? was to blatantly lie and to accuse you of changing the clothing and shooting more bullets into the corpses? Right, yeah. These, the security forces, But journalists had joined you in the first... Yeah, that's right. Journalists had gone up, up the mountain. How did it feel to gone, hear this? Uh, well, you know, this was, this was, this was Slobodan Milosevic and the Serb uh, propaganda machines... Every day they turned out a different story. Uh, this was blatant story. lying. Yeah, just just, just propaganda. Uh, you know, uh, when they couldn't explain the the evidence one way, they would put something together that sort of explained it. And they came to the conclusion that I had gone up there. These men and boys, two of the men were ninety nine years of age, and the Serbs were claiming these were fighters for the KLA. Come on. 
99, they were all dressed in farmers' clothes. The bullet holes and the blood were all consistent with the bullet had gone in there and that's where the blood had come out. Some of them had bullets in the heads, eyes blown out, that sort of stuff. Why were the heads missing? They were decapitated? That was just one, one head missing. The first body we came on, they had put a little rug over and they pulled back the rug and there was no head there. I don't know. I have no idea why. Why did but, they kill these people? The Serb security forces were a combination of some regular army, some uh, sort of special police forces, and then some sort of militia types. Uh, and uh, They're just angry? They had surrounded the village. They thought it was a KLA sort of center. Did they legitimately think that it? Yeah. And they, they thought had, some they terrorists some were reason. there. I mean, they, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They thought that this, you know, was maybe a recruiting ground or this is what the boys of this village did when Only they... just the KLA is a Kosovo Liberation, Liberation Army. Army yeah. Right. Yeah. And they, um, they came and surrounded the village on the mountains around it or the hillsides around it. They bombarded it for most of the 14th of uh, January. Uh, and then at, at sort of at dusk, they moved in. By that time, a lot of... If there were KLA fighters, they had disappeared. Mm-hmm. When they got there, they... Brought out all the men and boys they could find, which turned out to be 45, 46. Uh, one woman. Um, a couple of the men had escaped in a different direction, and they witnessed what happened. The men and boys were rounded up and marched off. No arms, obviously. Is it very dissimilar from anything that America ever did? The My Like oh, Massacre geez. in Vietnam? Uh, well, it's similar in that military guys with high-powered weapons blew away a bunch of civilians. Mm-hmm. It's certainly similar in that. Was respect. it guilt through association then that they were executed? Because we no, suspect look, look, that terrorists... As I say, there were a number of other massacres. Yeah. There, there was, the most famous is called the Yashadi family. It was a family that... The uh, Srebrenica? Uh, no, no, no. It's just in Kosovo. And they, they, they bombarded themselves in their, in their big uh, tribal home and defied the security forces. This is... They barricaded themselves. Barricaded. This is... Mm-hmm. sometime before Rachak. And the Serb forces moved in and just wiped them out, burned their houses, killed them all, babies, kids, old men, women. Um, that was a bad massacre, but no internationals got to come in and say what And more happened. people died than the 47 yeah, in Rachak. Yeah, 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 I think so, yeah. Uh, there, there were a number of other massacres earlier. Uh, so this, you know, this was just the Serb military security forces showing what they would do to a village if they thought the village was against them. Now at that so time, they want the men and boys off, you know, as prisoners. Yeah. The women in the village thought their husbands, sons, grandfathers were being taken off to be beaten and interrogated. That was as darkness fell. Mm-hmm. Next morning, they found them in the ravine leading up up to the hills, blown away. Yeah. Bullet casings all over the place. They were moved up. They were marched up a ravine. The security forces were on either side on the high ground and mm-hmm. shot down on them from 20, 30 feet away. Were the guns from the Soviet Union or from America? Uh, I don't remember that, but the, the, the cartridges which my military guys found yeah. that day, they said these are what the Serb military forces used. The Serb, yeah. So we spoke earlier about how um, the Serbian uh, government was lying through propaganda um, and of course, you mentioned, you alluded earlier to your time in El Salvador uh, and the Iran Contra scandal. Uh, I believe 
that the Iran-Contra scandal was an example of the United States government not telling the truth? Is there any analogy to well, be made? Wait, I mean, let's put it this way. It was a part of the U.S. government not telling the truth. Uh-huh. You know, and I would say uh, I think Oliver North was convicted of not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was certainly not the whole U.S. government knowingly saying things that were false. So I, the big difference would be a few bad actors versus the entire government. Yeah, a few bad actors who were able to use their positions of power yeah. to get the rest of the government to do certain things that turned out to be based on bad information. Let me try the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You right. know, all of a sudden, a few people say, oh, they're there, and here's some proof, and you know, poor General Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, goes to the United Nations to present this proof to the world, not knowing that it was not based on the truth. It was mm-hmm. based on speculation. imaginary speculation. Uh, so, uh, you know, it wasn't the U.S. government. So, Were if we some... supporting the Contras, yes. So, if a Why? skeptical, because our, you know, our analysis of what was going on in Central America was that Nicaragua was in an expansionist mood. Mm-hmm. They were doing things to help the guerrillas in El Salvador mm-hmm. that we thought was bad. Mm-hmm. In Honduras, I was serving in Honduras at the beginning of that problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when the Samosa people were coming out and forming into the Contras. And at the beginning, the Contras were as bad as some of the, our opponents of uh, the Contra program said they were. Mm-hmm. Later on, it became a movement of peasants from Nicaragua Indians from the east coast of Nicaragua who had been very bad treated, badly treated by the, the government in Managua. So these things are situations that develop over time and things change. Again, when I was in Honduras and saw the guys that I was told were Contras, I thought, oh my God, why, why would we support this bunch of idiots? <laughs> you know, five years later, three years later, I'm very much involved in helping the Contras, <coughs> but the Contras I met at that point down in some of the camps were very different. Were very different. They were peasants from the East Coast who had objected to the San- Sandinista coming in and burning their villages, and they wanted to fight. They wanted to fight back. <coughs> and by then, the the guys that I had met earlier mm-hmm. who were scumbags. Uh, they were living in Miami and doing very well, thank you. <laughs> so. Things change. International politics is so interesting. You find a world of gray that's often portrayed through major media in a world of black and white. Absolutely. That's exactly right. So, look, we are approaching the end of this podcast episode. So, Bill, I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. I'd like you to speak to, um, let's say, veterans. There's 1,400 people who once worked for you as as part of the Kosovo Verification Mission. Suppose there's some sort of reunion. And, uh, and you're able to speak to all of them. How would you, what would you tell them about your motivations for public service over the course of your career and about their legacy and your legacy at the end of your careers? Well, I, w- I would certainly tell them they, they should be very proud about their legacy. I'm, I'm proud of my legacy. Um, I, I, I hope they would support me in that. Uh, most of the ones I've met, uh, I've only met a few of them over the years, but uh, most of them have... Uh, vivid and very positive memories of what happened in Kosovo during those short months that we were there. Um, you know, when we left Kosovo to go into Macedonian exile, when the bombing started, 
you know, that's when I really saw horrible scenes, not like Ratchak, bodies on the ground, bullets in them, but of tens of thousands of people who had been forced out, mass exodus, pushed out, and put into refugee camps, hastily constructed in the winter of the Balkans in Macedonia, in Albania. Uh, a couple of hundred thousand, more than a couple of hundred thousand. And I went to those refugee camps every day to see what the world was doing to help them, and we tried to do an awful lot. So the KVM, the, uh, the Kosovo Verification Missionary people, 1,400 of them who were mostly in, in Macedonian exile, you know, went to the camps and tried to do what they could to help. Um, you know, I look back on my career and I say, you know, the legacy in El Salvador, uh, I'm certainly not uh, going to say that the death of the Jesuits helped my legacy in any way. Obviously it didn't. But what I tried to do there was I had to decide whether pushing incredibly hard on the Jesuit case to resolve it might infringe on getting the peace negotiations going. Because if we did what a lot of people wanted us to do, which was to condemn the army and say they were the villains and blah, 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 the army would never have entered into the peace negotiations, would never have let the president sign a peace agreement with them under that kind of fire. So it was a, and I, I really believe that what I did in, in, this was somewhat verified by a after action uh, investigation done in the Department of State in which they looked at all the traffic that came out and anyone who claimed that the embassy was protecting the killers of the Jesuits knows how false that claim is. If you go and talk to Congressman Jim McGovern, liberal Democrat from Massachusetts, who was sent down by Speaker, Mo not Speaker Moakley, uh, Chairman Moakley, uh, to look into the Jesuit case, both are Catholics, both are liberal Democrats, they came away saying Ambassador Walker did as much as he possibly could in the situation to promote one solid in the Jesuit case, Jim gets credit for solving it, but he only gets credit because he doesn't speak Spanish and never been there before because I introduced him to someone who did speak Spanish and lived there and knew how to solve it. Um, so they give me credit for what I did for the Jesuit case. But that is still a, a, a spot on my, on, my, on my legacy. But my participation in getting the, the country to a, end a 10-year civil war, I find a very positive part of my legacy. The Kosovo thing is, is even more dramatic. Um, you know, there were over two million people living in Kosovo, 90, 95% Albanians, living a horrible life. They couldn't get higher education. They could barely go to school. Two generations of Kosovars lost the ability to know really how to deal with the modern world lack of education, lack of opportunity. No one in, no one who was Albanian really served in the government in, in Belgrade. I mean, they were deprived of everything, not to mention being mistreated or massacred. Uh, the war took place, the bombing took place, I think in part because of my contribution and you know, with some help from NATO bombing. Uh, and two million people's lives were dramatically changed. They have now got independent life. I'm sorry to say that independence has not brought the happiness we thought. You know, corruption has broken out. 
crime and violence has broken out, economic development has not taken place, but at least they're independent, they're making their own decisions. So that's my legacy. So that's what I would tell those 1,400 people if I saw them. And that has been Bill Walker, former ambassador to El Salvador, head of mission, the Kosovo Verification Mission, uh, a lifelong uh, a State Department official uh, who speaks about a varied career over the spread of continents, uh, protecting human rights, uh, advocating as best he can for peaceful solutions and the ability for people to pursue uh, their own self-determination. So, Bill, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was a perfect summary of what I was saying. Thank you very much for having me. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.